Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to two places, would you? 2 Kings chapter 18 and Philippians chapter 3. 2 Kings chapter 18 and Philippians chapter 3. As we are introduced to a new king today by the name of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah ranks alongside of Josiah probably as the two greatest kings Now, of course, setting aside David and Solomon, Hezekiah and Josiah were great kings. And good news is always wonderful to receive. And Judah is going to receive good news when they find out about their new king, Hezekiah. So notice with me, first off, in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 1, where the Bible says, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, the king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, the king of Judah, began to reign. And he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And I love verse 3. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and notice the model that he followed, according to all that his father David had done. So Hezekiah was a king, that looked back to the examples of good leadership. Because he would have to go back, many kings, to say, you know, I want a model to follow, and the model I want to follow is David. Now, of course, David wasn't a perfect man, and neither is any leader, any human leader we would ever follow or we would ever look to for direction. He wasn't a perfect man, but he was a redeemed man, living even then in the grace of God, in the goodness of God. And I think it's good for us to be reminded on how we choose those who we follow. Notice in Philippians, come over to Philippians now with me, verse 17 of chapter 3. I think it's such a great reminder of what Paul writes to the church in Philippi. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. He says, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I've told you often, and now I tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, and whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame. And notice, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. I love how Paul is drawing the church to say, brethren, I want you to follow my example. I want to live my life, Paul says, as an example for you to follow. And I pray that that's your desire as well, that you notice in your own life that it's not just you that matters. As Paul would say earlier in Philippians, that we would esteem others more highly than ourselves. So that not only are we living in such a way to please God as we should, and live in such a way to rely upon the sufficiency of his grace and the strength of his love and following Jesus as our model, God has also set before us human examples. And Paul, he set it out to say, follow my example. I mean, that's a pretty bold thing to say, don't you think? To be able to look at someone and say, follow me. Follow. I want you to follow my example. I want you to follow me as I'm following Jesus Christ. Notice he says, and note those that are walking the same way. And he really gives us the distinction of two types of people. There are those that are following in the citizenship of heaven, and though those that are living in the citizenship on earth. And another way we would say that is there are those that are walking in the spirit and there are those that are walking in the flesh. There are those that are talking about the things of the spirit and there are those that are, that are just living in this world, living for this world. That's all they're really into. And you know that's all they're really into because that's all they really talk about. 
And the reason that's all they really talk about is because that's all they're really living for. And that's what's in them. And it's an easy way to make a distinction. As you're entering into a conversation with someone, whichever way the conversation goes will really tell you where a person's living in the moment or for the extent of that conversation. Why? Because Jesus said this, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that's one of the greatest things you can do when you're challenged with someone that needs help from the Bible. What we might often refer to as biblical counseling or what we would rather refer to it as biblical discipleship One of the greatest things you can do in communicating the truth of God's word to someone is simply to get them talking. Just get them talking. Ask ask open-ended questions that will lead them to a way of describing the situation, describing where they are, and just begin to talk. Because the longer they talk, the less guarded and protected they are, and the less guarded and protected they are, the more their voice and their mouth begins to line up with really where they are. And it usually starts out with real guarded conversation. So, you know, tell me how things are going. Well, you know, praise the Lord, brother. Things are really good and, and things could be better. And uh, well, really, tell me what, what could be better. Well, you know, things aren't going so well in our marriage. But, you know, I've been praying, brother. And it starts out so spiritual and so strong. But if you get them talking for a while, eventually they go, you know what? My wife doesn't have any idea how to be a wife. Oh, really? Really? So that's how it is, Brother. And you begin to talk to them a bit. The more that they share, the more that then you can take the word of God and say, hey, hey, it sounds like ministry. It sounds like things are really tough in your marriage right now. And, and it sounds like your wife is posing some real challenging things for you. But let's talk about what God has to say about what a loving husband looks like. And then, you know, the guy, oh, no, no, no. I didn't come in here to talk about my loving husband. I am a loving husband. Let me show you how loving, I, you know, it's like, it's amazing that what can, what can come out when you, because what happens is, is so we're, we can be, and, and you just have to check yourself on this, but we can be so quick to want to solve someone's problem, but you don't even know what the problem is yet. And one of the ways to get to the, the root of the issue is open dialogue. And, and the key as you, uh, are you're drawing someone to, to, to talk is to be a good listener and just listen. And just let it soak in so the Holy Spirit can use it. He says, follow my example. Join me. You know there are people just like me that you have us as a pattern. You can look at us. Paul would refer to his self-sacrificial life. His life of self-denial. And the reason why he wants to stand as an example to the church in Philippi is because of verse 18. There are many people that walk, and that word simply means their manner of life. There are many people that live, of whom I told you often, and now I'm telling you with tears in my eyes, I'm weeping, that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Imagine that. Many in the church in Philippi were choosing to follow people that were literally enemies of the cross. Enemies of the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus Christ. Enemies of the self-sacrifice of Jesus. Enemies of a self-sacrificial life. They were enemies of the cross, he says. And he says, hey, their end is destruction. And their God is their belly. The glory and their shame. And they set their minds on earthly things. It's easy to lose focus in our lives and be distracted. We lose sight of our goals. We get hung up on the past. And and we don't often look to examples of godly men and women to get set back. What happens often when we get off course in our lives, when a believer gets off course, is they're surrounded by people that are corrupting their good habits. Where just three, four months ago, they were walking strong with the Lord. They were strong in the things of God. I mean, not, again, we're not speaking perfect. None of us are. None of us have everything in order. None of us have everything lined up perfectly. But I mean, a general walk, your progress is forward. It's upward and onward in the strength of the Lord. But before you know it, a compromising believer is often surrounded by other compromising believers. That's actually one of the main sources of compromise. The Bible says evil company corrupts good habits. And so you spend your whole life developing habits that reflect the love of God and respond to the grace of God, but then you find yourself surrounded with people that act just like you, talk just like you, and they live in such a way where where they're, you know, it's a whole group of compromising people and then you don't even see it anymore. You know, it's funny because as over the years, I've heard this phrase, I've heard it in various ways, and it's almost used negatively every time I hear it. 
And, and I just want to set the record straight that it's not as negative as people might make it out to be. But somebody will leave here or move on to something and then they'll look back at their time here at Calvary and they'll say something like, oh, I'm just so glad I got outside of the Calvary bubble is what they call it. And what they mean is this. They come and worship here, they sing here, they study the Bible here, they bear fruit here, they're a blessing to their family, they're a blessing at work, and God is doing great things, and then they step outside and they look back at that time of great fruitfulness and great change, maybe even got saved here, uh, involved in great things here, and they look back and go, oh, I'm just so happy I got out of that Calvary bubble. What's so wrong with bearing fruit for the kingdom of God? And it's not like the doors are locked here. If you want to head out, you can go out each of the doors. The Calvary bubble can't be popped in your mind. I, I teach my many, many times uh, before, and I'll remind us here, the body of Christ is so much bigger than the Calvary bubble. But I'm glad that God put me in this church to grow in grace. I'm blessed by this church. But I'm blessed by my Baptist friends, and I'm blessed by my Pentecostal friends, and I'm blessed by my Vineyard friends. There's a lot of people I'm blessed with, but man, to, to think that a place of fruitfulness, I look back at my time in California and the eight years I spent at Calvary Chapel in Downey. I never once when I left did I say, oh, I'm so glad that I'm not in the Calvary Downey bubble anymore. That bubble, whatever you want to call it, God used to save my life. The teaching of God, it saved my soul. And I'm always tripping out when I hear people, well, you know, I, it was just, I'm so free to be out of the Calvary bubble. Hey, it's, it's actually not even a Calvary bubble. It's just a great place to grow in grace. And somebody comes up and they say, you know, after a weekend, after a Bible study or something, and they say, you know, I was so blessed by that. I was so encouraged by that. You know, I can sense the spirit in this church and various many things that they say. And I say, you know what? I, I always respond almost the same way. I say, this is a great church. And then they kind of laugh because they know I'm the pastor, right? So of course, what am I going to say? It's a horrible church. Teaching is horrible. Everything's horrible. I don't know what you saw, but I didn't see that. I thought that, you know, I, no, of course, this is a great church. Why? Because this is where my family goes to church. I serve here and I'm grateful to serve here. This is what God's called me to serve right here, right now for this time period. I'm grateful. But you know what? My family goes to church here. Why would I be in a church where I wouldn't want my family to be discipled? Why well, wouldn't want them to grow? Why well, wouldn't want them to experience the grace of God? And so, you know, if this t topic ever comes up and you go, oh, you know, the Calvary bubble, just ask them, what's wrong with it? What's exactly wrong with being in a place where you bear fruit, where the Bible is being taught, where you sing together, you're surrounded by a bunch of imperfect people that are being grown in the grace of God that, hey, Man, God used it in your life. If you don't want to be here anymore, that's okay. Go to another church, bear fruit. You be used by God. But be careful to not put down good examples in your life. Paul does just the exact, exact opposite. He says, join in following my example because there's a lot of bad examples out there. There's a lot of bad examples. And how careful we need to be is I look at my own life and I, I really examine my life before the Lord. I truly want to be a good example. I may not be all the time. I readily admit that. And when it's brought to my attention or God reveals it through conviction, I only have one choice and that's to repent and make it right. That's really true for all of us, isn't it? To repent and make it right. But I know like Paul, I want to be able to say to our fellowship family, to anyone that might be listening by way of technology, hey, join him following my example. You know, I, I read the Bible every day almost. I pray every day, almost. I love worshiping God with the saints all the time, almost. <laughs> you get my point? Like, I'm following along. I mean, I have my days for sure. I have my days where like, I don't know. I didn't, man, it's, it's like bedtime. I haven't been in the word yet. I better jump in and like, Lord, I want to be, but I mean, not every day, but man, your example is going to be a steady progress, right? It's going to be a steady moving forward. It's going to be a steady upward call. And Paul says, follow my example because there's many examples not to follow. And that's a word of the Lord to someone today. There are many examples that you shouldn't follow. Not because of the Calvary bubble or some pastor told you to, because the Bible says so. It's the authority of God's word. There are just examples that we aren't to follow. And we're to note these folks. We're to note the ones to follow and we're to note the ones not to follow. Now, that doesn't mean we just dismiss people that are a bad example or dismiss people that might be backslidden. Not at all. Just don't follow them because you'll become like them. 
because you'll become and I'll become like who we choose to follow, who we choose to mimic. I, I know as a new believer, I was looking for people that I could watch on how to be a dad because I was such a horrible dad. And so I would show up to the prayer meeting, the men's prayer meetings, and I would show up to the men's Bible studies, and I would just be surrounded, and I would just watch guys that were taking care of their kids or talking about their families. And it didn't take long to really gain. That's a guy, man. That, I mean, I don't know his wife or his family, but that's a guy that I want to get to know. That's a guy that I want to be a part of his life. I want to ask him questions. I want to watch his family because one day I want to be like that. Because I don't know. I don't even know what to do. I would be watching people. What kind of husband am I supposed to be? What kind of husband am I supposed to be? And the last thing I needed to do was to look to people just like me that just got saved. Because they don't know how to be a husband either. We're all learning together. And that's why the Bible speaks of, you know, the Bible speaks of the older women ministering to the younger women. The older men ministering to the younger men. That we might be able to serve one another. And he says, notice, he says uh, in verse 18, he says, Many, um, note those who walk because you have us as a pattern because there's a lot of people of whom I told you often and I'll tell you weeping that they're enemies of the cross. They're enemies of the cross. Be careful who you're following because come back to, with me to 2 Kings. When it comes to the beginning in chapter 18, Hezekiah went all the way back to David and he followed in the ways of David. He made a wise choice. Notice what he did in verse 4. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah nor any would be before him. He held fast, I like that, he held fast to the Lord and he did not depart from following him but kept his commandments which the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him and he prospered wherever he went and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and he did not serve him. He subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from the watchtower to the fortified city. And so Hezekiah sought to make a real change. He really began to tear down the false worship, replacing it with the true. And he went through and did what was hard and what was difficult and what was unpopular. And it, be, it became so bad among the children of Israel, this reference to Nehushtan is a reference back to that bronze serpent that was used that now has become an article of idolatry. The bronze serpent that God literally saved people back in, in the book of Numbers. He saved their lives. If they would just look to it, it became a type of the cross, a type of Christ. If they would just look to the pole, if they would just look to the, the, the pole, they would be saved. And now it's become a form of idolatry. It's amazing what we would go, what we get into uh, when we take our eyes off the Lord. And the farther along we go, the more difficult it is. You know, remember with King Asa, there's this wonderful scripture reminding us of the presence of God. Because it says in verse 7, the Lord was with him and he prospered wherever he went. You want that to be said about you. The Lord's with you and you prosper wherever you go. This isn't like personal prosperity. This isn't the overflowing of money and resources and possessions. It's the presence of God. What possibly could you own physically that's better than the presence of God? And of course, we know in the new covenant, we know by grace that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. But I believe for us, when we think of this, when we say the Lord was with him, it's not like the Lord isn't with us, but that we enjoy the presence of God. That that's the real true prosperity, that we're enjoying him and that we're walking in fellowship with him. And so note it, jot it down in 2 Chronicles chapter 15. Let me read it to you. It says, And now the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. But if you forsake him, he'll forsake you. Now we'll get into this text when we get into 1st 2nd Chronicles. And we'll study it more in depth. But what a glorious revelation of the presence of God. You know, especially to those of you that might feel a little lonely tonight, a little isolated, 
just feeling like nobody really understands or really nobody knows where you are, hey, the Lord is with you and you will prosper wherever you go. You're not forgotten by God. And that's the key to spiritual success, God's presence in our lives. Notice now in verse nine. Now it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, they took it And in the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is, the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Israel, Samaria was taken. Then the king of Assyria carried Israel away captive to Assyria and put them in Halah by the harbor, or Habor, the river of Gozan, and then the city of Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, that they would neither hear nor do them. And in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, verse 13, Sennacherib, the king of Syria, came up against the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Then Hezekiah, the king of Judah, sent to king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I've done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and all the treasuries of the king's house. And check this out. Hezekiah was a great king, but he wasn't perfect. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. It didn't take but four years. According to my math, he's about 29 years old and he's facing the battle of his life because he makes that decision to live a life that honors God And it didn't take long. I mean, four years is not very long as he settles himself as the king to face this attack, as we have seen over and over again. The king is making a great error here as he responds to the attack of the enemy. He's got attacked in four years by one king and then another 10 years by Sennacherib. And Hezekiah just sees the difficulty of the situation and I made a mistake and he's, and we can't forget here, as we're studying through the life of Hezekiah, he, we are studying him as a man and as a great example to follow and how he went back to David. But this is also a political issue. He is politically overseeing. His role is to politically oversee the nation as unto the Lord. There's the king, there's the priest who is responsible for the spiritual care of the nation. And then there, remember, if the king isn't going well and the priest isn't doing well, then what would God do? He would raise up a prophet. And so those are the different, ple- different people that God would use. And so don't, mi- don't, mi- don't misunderstand that, that Hezekiah personally is the one that's doing this. It's by his leadership as the political overseer of the nation. So as the political overseer of the nation, we got to get our lives right back with God. Check. And let's live for God. Check. Oh, the enemy's coming. Oh, I don't know. No mention of prayer. No mention of calling for the priest. No mention of a prophet speaking at this time. And then another battle comes, and now Hezekiah's going, oh, I just, we'll just pay him off. And this is a great error here. As he's stealing from the temple in order to gain some kind of temporary peace. Now, he doesn't believe it's temporary peace. This, there's, we know the full story, but anyone going in this direction of compromise, I believe if their eyes were open, they would just consider their situation, really thinks they're going to get what they're looking for in permanent peace. I'm just going to get, there's there's a sense of temporary relief that will continually be with me. And Hezekiah thinks he's not going to be dealt with by the enemies anymore. So much so that he was willing to go into the temple, to the house of God, and strip the gold off of the pillars. He stripped, it says, verse 16, he stripped the gold off the doors of the temple of the Lord from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid, and he gave it to the king. Instead of calling out to the God that supplied that gold in the first place, that's where he got it from before, instead of calling out to the God that established him as king, Instead of calling out to the God that he worshiped by getting rid of all the pillars and, I mean, getting rid of all the idolatry in the land, he takes things into his own hands. And I see a principle here that I can't, we can't just overlook. 
especially from the perspective of Hezekiah with the enemy, and it's simply this. Listen, you might want to jot it down. This is a warning now. It's a warning in the middle of it, and it'll be a warning in the future. There are to be no negotiations with the enemy. There are to be no negotiations with the enemy. When you try to appease the enemy, he will never be satisfied. He will never be satisfied. The more you yield, the more he takes. And the more he takes, the more he wants. And I believe in a very strong principle of the weakness. If if you show your weakness in that way of negotiating with the enemy, he's going to go after that weakness constantly and attack and attack in that same way. The very first sin in the Garden of Eden was the, the result of deceit and compromise. Believing the lie. Eve and her little conversation with the devil, negotiating. Don't do it, guys. Be careful not to negotiate with sin. Paul would tell young Timothy this way in 2 Timothy 2.22. He says, flee youthful lusts and instead pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Notice, same principle. With all who call upon the name of the Lord. That's why being in a position of worship at any time, whether it's a church service like this or turning on the radio, listening to a Bible study, putting in a podcast, gathering together with other men and women that love Jesus Christ. Anytime you do that, you are pursuing righteousness. Now, of course, if you're pursuing righteousness, but you gather together and you come through and you're like, you know, I made, I've made our midweek Bible study a big part of my life. But you know what? I haven't seen a big change. Another Bible study, I'm taking notes, I'm learning, but I haven't seen a significant change. And that may well be true because change takes time. It, you know, some change takes time. That's, that may be true. It's okay. You're not, a, you're not an unusual. That's not unusual. Because in our instant society that we just expect everything right away, it would think, man, if two Bible studies, two massive changes. One Bible. No, no, it takes time. The Lord's working out. He's doing all kinds of things. But might I just suggest this? Just, 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 just suggest this massive change when you get together with another believer when you come to a Wednesday night Bible study, when you come to a service, serve in another service, when you open your home Bible study, when you pray, whenever you're doing things pursuing righteousness, can I just say one of the major changes that you're experiencing that you may not realize is, is that the moments you're seeking the Lord, you're not seeking the world. Just that. In the moments you're seeking God, you're not dabbling in the things of the world. In the moments you're seeking God, you're not, you're not wasting your time. In the moment you're seeking God, you're not actively raging in sin. Uh, You're not punching holes in the wall. You're not yelling at people. You're you're not involved in all kinds of things that might be a foothold and a bondage. And so let's just say, let's just say, just let's say for for six months, you've made uh, church uh, gathering with other believers a big part of your life. So six months, 26 hours, that's 26 hours you've invested in your life in spiritual things. Do you not think God is not going to use that in your life, 26 hours? Is there anything else you invest 26 hours in? I mean, 26 hours is significant. And then it goes to 52, then it goes to 100. Before you know it, the massive change has been happening all along in smaller ways. And we want some big explosive change. But when you gather together and you, like for for example, there might be someone listening right now, listening to this Bible study because they chose to run away from sexual lust to be in the place of a Bible study. That is a major change. And you do that long enough, you're going to create a new habit in your life. And you're going to start to see women in your life as sisters. And you're going to start to see men in your life as brothers. And you're going to be finding yourself, wow, I'm not even going to church to run away from youthful lust anymore. Yeah, because God has been doing that inward work in your life. And he's been doing it over time with your cooperation of obedience. And so massive changes don't always show up overnight. There's a Bible word for that. It's called sanctification. That's the spiritual Bible word that describes God changing you from the inside out. So that now, you know, maybe you were, uh, let's use one that is more popular or more common. Before you got saved, the F-bomb was a big part of your vocabulary. And you just knew, man, and when I go to church, I probably shouldn't use the F-bomb. Okay, you just, that, amen, good choice. It's probably not good to use that word around the brothers and the sisters and the kids. And so you made a conscious human decision, I will not cuss anymore. 
And you were okay, pretty successful at it a while. You slipped up now and then. But then you found yourself in the company of believers where you just wouldn't do it. And then over time, it's not a conscious choice anymore. You just don't cuss anymore. Why? Because God did the work. It wasn't your decision not to cuss as much as you chose to cooperate with God. It was the very power of God inside of you changing your desires and giving you different thoughts and different actions. And even then, you're not even so mad anymore, which is why you drew that, threw the F-bomb around anyway. And occasionally it comes back and it scares you. You're like, I haven't cussed in forever, but man, I just dropped the F-bomb the other day and I'm like, maybe I'm not saved. No, no, no. No, you just... You sinned. You were in the flesh. You're a saved person now that worries about the F-bomb coming out of their mouth. How did that happen? God. It doesn't mean you're a lousy believer. It's just a reminder. Oh, yeah. The flesh is alive and well. Always looking for a way out. Always looking for a way to manifest itself. Always looking for a way. That's why there's no negotiations with the enemy. He will only want more. Run away from whatever besets you and hang out with people that are going to help you. Run away from it. Flee youthful lusts. And this isn't just sexual. It's this lusting after the things of the world, just like Paul said in Philippians. It's just this earth has such a hold on us. Run away from that stuff and start hanging out with people that are going to build you up. People are going to pray with you. People are going to talk about spiritual things. Be careful. Be watchful. Don't Negotiate with the enemy because you'll end up stealing the gold from God. You may be here saying, I'll never steal from God. But what do we rob from God when we live in the flesh? I mean, if you chose to try to walk out with one of the offering boxes, I think we'd probably catch you. There's probably GPS in there, and if you took it home, would follow you there too. And there's ink on the checks, and you'd have ink all over you. Like, it, just don't do it. Why? Because that money belongs to God. And you're like, I'd never walk out with an offering box. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But can I ask you to consider today, are you robbing God because of your negotiations with the enemy? Are you robbing him of the talents he's given you? Are you robbing him of time? Are you robbing him of giving him the glory for the great things he has done? Are you robbing him in relationship? Which in, really, in essence, you're robbing yourself. I would never go to the temple and, man, and take the gold. I know, he didn't start out that way, did he? But he ended up there here after a couple battles with the enemy. And it's like, I don't want to fight anymore. I don't want to fight. Here, let me just, can I pay you? Tell me what it would take. And, and he gives us, yeah, he assessed him. You know, he just kind of surrendered himself. Yeah, just go ahead and give me uh, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And that time Hezekiah stripped the gold. Be careful. Verse 17, come back as we close up. Then the king of Assyria sent the Tartan and the Rapsaries and the Rapshekah from Lachish. I just like saying that, Rapshekah. From then Lachish, and with a great army against Jerusalem to King Hezekiah. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they had come up, they came and stood by the aqueduct, by the upper pool, which was on the highway to the foolish field. And when they had called to the king Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, uh, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to them. Then Rabshakeh said to him, or them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. What confidence is, is this in which you trust? You speak of having counsel and strength for war, but they are vain words. And in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Now look, verse 21, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed Egypt, on which if a man leans it will go into his hand and pierce it. So a Pharaoh king of Egypt, so is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Now, therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to put riders on them. 
How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put trust in the Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I not come to you without the Lord against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Let me just say, this is a mocker. (laughs) This is a mocker. And you know, it's true that many people's concept of God comes directly from those who say they follow him and those who worship him. And that's what's happening here. They're looking at the behavior of Hezekiah. They're looking at what he said compared to what he's done. And they're belittling the God that Hezekiah says he lives for. He says, who who are you? you? Are you trusting in God or are you trusting in Egypt? And he's coming to intimidate him and mock him because the enemy always wants more. And for us, that, what we refer to in this is that people really do have a concept of God because of you and because of me. Our, we call it our witness. That's what we, when you hear that word around the church, it simply, it simply reflects uh, the, the, the significance of our lives send a message to people about the God that we serve. Our lives are decisions. And we refer to that as our witness or we might even use the word testimony as we give testimony and the testimony of our lives. Hezekiah, because of his decision to pay off the king, appears weak in the eyes of this king. He appears weak. And so Sennacherib begins to boast against not only Hezekiah, but the God of Hezekiah. And one of the phrases that we use often, and I think you know, it's just something to consider, is how many times have we blown our witness? Uh, I think many times. And how quick we need to, when we realize that, how quick we need to do to repair it and apologize for misrepresenting God and misrepresenting his place in our lives. This king, again, you don't negotiate with the enemy because now what happens, he sends 200,000 people to intimidate Hezekiah. And this is how it works. This is how it works. You think through compromise you'll be left alone and that things will get easier and the enemy will just leave you alone. But in reality, that's not how our enemy works. He looks for any weakness, not just to hassle you, not just to tempt you, not just to mess with you, not just to make you upset, not just to divide you from people that love you and divide you from your family and from your church family, but the ultimate thing, the enemy will not be satisfied until he takes you out completely. And isn't it significant in the days in which we live that we've never ever in the history of our country seen a higher suicide and attempted suicide rate than we see today? Of how discouragement leads to despair, that leads to depression, that leads to hopelessness has been capturing the heart of so many. Not just the youth, although there's an increased number among the youth, but even among movie stars and idols of our world that people look up to and say, I wanna be that person. I wanna have what they have. I want their money. I want their notoriety. I want their platform. I wanna sing like them. And you would think, you know, what people ascribe to is the highest level that this world has to offer and they too are beset by this weakness and this difficulty. Why? Because we have a real enemy that goes after believer and unbeliever alike. And he's not happy with just a few scrapes from gold from the temple. He says, here you are. No, he's not happy with that. He's not happy with a little bit of compromise. Oftentimes, the person that's compromising senses a, has a sense of relief, but the enemy's not relieved. And, of course, the minute we submit ourselves to abiding back into Jesus Christ is the minute that the truth shows up. Because we see in this section from verses 17 to 25 that the enemy misunderstands Hezekiah. He's got a few pieces of information, but he misunderstood. Why? Because it reminds us that the devil is not omnipresent. The devil is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything about you. One of the advantages that the devil has in our lives is that he's been around longer than us and he's a student of human behavior. Like he can't get in your head right now and read your thoughts. The devil cannot get into a believer's head and read your thoughts at all. 
No demonic force can invade the believer. The enemy does all of his work on the outside for believers. What we, we believe the Bible teaches that the devil is a great oppressor, but he doesn't possess the believer. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's in you and you're sealed by the Holy Spirit and light and darkness can't coexist. So the Lord God is in you, but the enemy's smart and he watches human behavior. Even you, you know, even us in our prayer, you know, people maybe in law enforcement are much more advanced in this than we are, but even in ours, like we can tell, we can tell things in people's lives by their body language. We can tell, you know, simple things. You can pretty much tell if somebody's happy or sad. How? By their face. The enemy's far more advanced. And so he doesn't know everything. He just kind of makes some educated guesses. And he's not omnipresent. And remember, he's saying, you know, if you, don't, if you trust in God, then why are you destroying all the altars? See, he was wrong. Why was he destroying all the altars? Because they were false worship. He was worshiping God. So here, he took something that's supposed to look, you know, the enemy looks at it and goes, oh, look at you. Um, look at you. You don't even trust in God because you're destroying all the altars. But in reality, that's exactly what he was doing because he does trust in God. He doesn't have it all. And notice, he offers all, he asks for all this money. I have a number here. I didn't do the math, but in my study Bible, what was asked back in verse 14 was $115 million and $172 million in, in today's money. And what does he offer him in return uh, down here at the bottom? A couple thousand horses. It's not a good exchange rate with the devil. <laughs> you, you and I, we just aren't going to get I can't think of any time in my life, personally, where I've compromised or I've negotiated with the devil where I ever got what I thought I was going to get. I never. And those are the times where I'm grateful. You know, Romans 8.28 is often one of those beautiful passages we share with someone that's in pain or suffering. And, and, and at the right time and the right uh, timing, you share that with them. Hey, God's working all things together for the good. But, you know, it's not just for those that are in pain or suffering. It's a truth for those that have failed. It's a truth for those that have stumbled. It's a truth for those that have miscalculated. It's a truth for those that have, might have chosen to compromise. It's a truth for those that might have negotiated with the enemy. Look, and listen, you can recover from that, come back to the Lord, and listen, God is going to use all things and work them all together for good. For those that love him, those that are called according to his purpose. You go, well, Ed, if that's the case, then why don't I just live with the tremendous freedoms I have in Christ and, and sin or come close to sin? Why don't I just do that? Well, Paul was asked that question in Romans too. He said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And his answer was, Sure. No, no, his answer wasn't that. He said, in the strongest way possible in the Greek language, and it's translated in the English, certainly not. It's a certainty. We don't choose sinful behavior, compromise, so that we can experience more grace. We choose to abide in Christ, and we have all the grace that's needed in the moment. It's beautiful. And so, you know, in verse 17... These are a few places we're going to get to, just so if you want to jot them down when we get to Chronicles, um, a few locations that we're going to learn about, you know, sent to Tartan and the Rabseres and the Rabshakeh and a great army against Israel and King Hegaziah. We're going to get a lot more of those. And knowing they were coming, listen, knowing they were coming, this is a really cool thing, that Hezekiah commissioned the carving of an underground tunnel 17 feet of, through 1,700 feet of solid rock. They started on opposite ends. He had people start on opposite ends and started digging toward each other until they finally met. And this would then bring, because water was the lifeblood, this would bring water in from the Gihon Spring under the wall into the Pool of Siloam. Now that tunnel, known as Hezekiah's Tunnel, still exists today. And if you ever have the chance, and I hope you do, that the Lord would provide a way for you to come to Israel with us, a physical tour that we take on Israel, you will have the option and strongly encouraged to do so, to sh wake up that day, go to the bus in your shorts, we will take you to the Hezekiah's tunnel and you will literally walk through this very tunnel that Hezekiah had built. It's, it's just fascinating. And it can be very cold and the water very high. But other than that, it's fine. <laughs> Most of the time it's about to your knees. 
it's super dark. But to think, you know, the critics of the Bible, oh, no, it didn't happen. No, it didn't. Man, we'll take you right there. We'll start up in the city of David. You'll go through and you'll end up in the pool of Siloam that's still remnants of that area still there today. It's fascinating. And so we'll get to that. Again, now, the rest of the chapter has more and more attacks or more attempts at intimidation. Eliakim, verse 26, the son of Hilkiah, Shebna, Joah said to Rabshakeh, please speak to your servants in the Aramaic language, for we understand it. And do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of all the people who are on the wall. But Rabshakeh said to them, has my master sent me to your master and to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall and who will eat and drink with their own waste with you? Then Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew, spoke saying, and he, they spoke in Hebrew, why? To intimidate everyone. Uh, and he says, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you from his hand. And that, you know, that's a significant intimidation. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying the Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me by a present and come out to me and every one of you eat from his own vine and every one of you his own fig tree and every one of you drink the waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive groves and honey that you may live and not die. But do not listen to Hezekiah lest he persuade you saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land to the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Shepharim and Hena and Eva, Iva? Uh, indeed, they have delivered Samaria from my hand. Verse 35. Who among the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? And so the spokesperson, Rabshakeh, from the king of Syria, Assyria, reels out to the soldiers in their language, hoping to demoralize them. And the enemy does the same thing among us. If you want to think of, of the attack that, that the enemy throws your way through the voice of someone else to divide you from your pastor, to divide you from your spiritual leader, you can just replace the name Hezekiah uh, with your pastor, you know, whatever your pastor's name is. But for the sake of our study, you know, first of all, he goes after Hezekiah and calls him a liar and a deceiver. Secondly, he claims that Hezekiah telling you to trust in God is not enough. Then he claims that surrendering to Assyria will lead to them getting their own vine and their own fig tree and their own cistern. He promises them possessions. Then he promises them that they wouldn't die. And then he puts doubts in their heads about God's delivering power. And he even uses Hezekiah's name. Don't let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, verse 30. Verse 31, don't listen to Hezekiah. I mean, what, what would this sound like, how the enemy would come to you in today and say, hear the word of the great king, whoever's trying to draw you after themselves, and then say, don't let your pastor deceive you. He won't be able to deliver you from his hand. Don't let pastor so-and-so make you trust in the Lord. What kind of counsel is that? That's the best thing you could ever do. Trust in the Lord. He will protect you and guard you and help you and strengthen you. And yet... You know, people that come against the king and the appointed leader by God would easily try to undermine that. In this simple list, you can see that the enemy takes this simple approach, and that is he'll do whatever it takes to get you and me to fear and to be afraid. And these same temptations are the ones you see in the garden. Prosperity, no death, and undermining God's truth. It's exactly what Eve faced. It's the devil's tactics are tired tried and useful unfortunately many times successful verse 36 then the people but the people held their peace and answered him not a word for the king's commandment was do not answer him and then Eliakim the son of Hilkiah who was over the household Shebna the scribe and Joah the son of Asaph recorder came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh and when the enemy comes knocking this is how you answer him. You ready? When he comes intimidating, when the lies come, just here's how you do it. Hold your peace and don't answer him a word. Just let God deal with it. This is what the Bible says. James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. That's what they do here with this attack, which becomes a picture and a type of how we're to resist the enemy in our lives. 
When you're tempted to the, by the devil, call out to God. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10 says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run to it and are safe. Psalm 91, verse 14 says, because God has set his love upon me, therefore I'll deliver him and I'll set him on high because he has known my name. Resist the devil. Stay as far away from the devil as you can and submit to God. Stay as close to the Lord as you can. Blessed are those, the Bible says in Psalm 119, verse 2, blessed are those who keep his testimonies and who seek him with your whole heart. And I was just sharing with the guys in the school ministry recently, so many of the issues in our lives is a matter of our hearts. The heart of the matter, I said, is always a matter of the heart. Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. And the enemy's going to come, the enemy's going to come, the enemy's going to come. He's already looking for open ways and things against us. And they always looking for a little, little here and a little there. And, and we just got to expect it. And what's our response? Submit to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. And so, Father, we just know that the enemy, this, these, these um, studies in the book of Kings, is just reminding us of this cosmic battle that's constantly raging around us that we don't always pay attention to. I know I can get up and caught up in things, Lord, where I just don't see the spiritual behind it. I only see the physical. And I pray, Lord, that you would just enable us to get our eyes, spiritual eyes back on, that we might walk in the Spirit, loving and serving those that are before us, cultivating a heart that loves you and loves the lost, and fleeing youthful lust, that we would run away from sin, and run to others that would help us in the spiritual realm. And so thank you for the investment, whether it's this church service or they're attending church somewhere else in town here and they're just, people are seeking you tonight. And then tomorrow they're gonna seek you in the morning. And then tomorrow night they're gonna seek you again. And I'm just so grateful for all the great, godly, solid churches in our community and the pastors and their wives and their kids and the lay leaders that have chosen to submit to you and Lord I was even reminded today as I was driving in uh, I saw Lord to the left that car that had the the stickers we had a while back and we said we're all in and Lord may we just stay all in just stay committed to you Lord forgive us for our wandering ways forgive us for our wandering thoughts forgive us from being intimidated by the enemy and being intimidated by his circumstances Lord Forgive us when we, we follow bad examples that we might use and redeem the time for the days are evil and that, God, you would strengthen us and enable us to overcome in the power of your spirit and not our own flesh. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.